You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How's it going, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? It's going well. Uh, we took a one-week break off from the podcast, but uh, it's good to be back. Uh, the reason for the break, as I may have told listeners on our most recent episode, was that I was um, briefly on a trip to Tokyo, uh, which was, um, it had been a little over a year for me, actually, since I've been back in Japan, but um it was it was a really interesting time to uh, visit Japan. Uh, while I was there, I was fortunate enough to have quite a few meetings with um, fairly senior level people in the Abe administration in a in a variety of roles. Um, and obviously, you know, we managed to broach a few topics in Asian geopolitics. Um, and I think you know what we'll devote this episode to this week, Prashant, is uh, the idea of the Indo Pacific. This has come up in recent podcasts that we've done, particularly in the context of U.S. foreign policy. We talked about this, uh, especially in the few episodes we did on Trump's trip to Asia, where uh, this was certainly a major theme. Uh, Both of us saw a lot of interest in the Indo-Pacific concept as early as last summer when we were both at the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2017 in Singapore, and this is a much older idea in Asia. So uh, does does that sound good for today? Sounds good. Cool. All right. So where, where do you want to begin? I, I guess we, we maybe take a, a step back and, and just ask ourselves, you know, one year after the Trump administration came to office, um, where are we at with this uh, strategy? So, it, you know, we, we do have this um, during the first year in office, the the president at least committing to go to the region, having, you know, one of the longest trips to the region of any president in the last few decades, unveiling this sort of Indo-Pacific strategy or vision, um, but still a lot of uncertainty and confusion um, in several Asian governments and capitals, as I'm sure you probably heard some of that as well in in Tokyo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even on the broad contours of policy, I mean, we don't know where uh, the president and his administration are on, on China. We don't know, you know, what the future shape is on trade after TPP withdrawals. So, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of uh, I guess a lot of interest and a lot of curiosity as to how this Indo-Pacific strategy or, or vision will will actually play out. Um, but I think um, you know I think people are waiting to see whether this administration can actually deliver on a broad sort of comprehensive strategy, right? And I think the the big issue, I guess, for me, um, you know, having looked at U.S. foreign policy in in, in more of a historical perspective, is uh, when you hear the strategic visions and outlines coming out from from the president, um, usually wait for uh, the follow-ups to figure out whether any of this is going to be implemented. And you look at things like personnel, you look at budgets, resourcing, and uh, I think on, on all those counts, we still haven't gotten a definitive sense of where the Trump administration is. So it, it's kind of very hard to uh, figure out where the strategy is at right now, in addition to the fact that we haven't heard um, a lot of specifics, um, but I'm curious as as to what uh, your 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 take is on where we're at today. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's interesting that you chose to, uh, you know, frame this discussion of the Indo-Pacific in terms of the Trump administration. I think that's certainly a big part of it. Obviously, you know, we're having this podcast discussion after we've seen both the national security strategy and the national defense strategy come out. Both of those documents give quite a bit of attention to the Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it striking, for example, in the NDS that the Trump administration, you know, lists building partnerships and alliances in the Indo-Pacific region before it lists the transatlantic alliance. I think that, uh, you know, is, is surprising from an administration that I wouldn't specifically say has a trans-Pacific outlook to its foreign policy like the Obama administration might have had. Um, so I found that interesting. But, you know, I mean, for me, when I take a step back and I really think about the Indo-Pacific and what it means today, and especially after my conversations in Tokyo, um, it really, you know, it, it really comes back to me how much this really isn't about the United States necessarily. And that's why this is such a fascinating idea. And maybe this is just my bias after spending some time talking to um, senior Abe government officials in Japan. But, I mean, this is an idea that was very much incubated in Japan and has been incubated over a period of about, you know, just about a decade. Um, so, you know, we could we could go back to uh, Abe's, you know, first term in office in 2006 to 2007. And this is when a lot of analysts sort of trace the beginnings of, of the Indo-Pacific idea um, and more specifically one of its um, more concrete manifestations, which is this so-called quadrilateral security initiative, as it was called in 2006 or 2007. Um, but now we just call it the Quad. And the Quad is obviously the sort of consultative grouping of Japan, the United States, Australia, three allies, and India, a partner to all three of those countries, but an ally with none, obviously Asia's major rising power. And when you think in kind of historic terms, geopolitical terms, looking ahead 50 years, uh, India is necessarily a central component of the Indo-Pacific concept, hence the Indo, uh, hence why we've stopped using Asia-Pacific or Indo-Asia-Pacific as U.S. Pacific Command like to do. Um, And, uh, you know, India will have a massive youth bulge, a massive demographic dividend going forward. Uh, I think in a lot of Asia, there is an assumption that um, even if India is today a much poorer country than China and hasn't shown the same level of um, development growth as, as China has over the past two decades with its economic miracle, India will necessarily be a force to be contended with and and an important balancing um, power against China. And balancing is really what the Indo-Pacific strategy is about uh, today, and it certainly was about that in 2007, uh, when I think a lot of the impetus behind Japan's interest in in bringing together at least those four countries um, was driven by concern about a rising China. Obviously, China was a very different country on the world stage back then. Um, it was less powerful, and Beijing objected sharply to the uh, the first ever meeting of the quadrilateral at the time, which was very short-lived. Australia was then under uh, the Kevin Rudd government, which had misgivings about um, alienating China in that way. Um, and obviously, 2007 is the year we see um, Malabar Uh, take on a particularly large form that also spooks China. Um, And obviously, you know, as we talked about on this podcast in uh, late November, there was a fairly low level convening of the Quad that resulted in a fairly, you know, a fairly predictable series of statements, um, although with a few interesting divergences. Um, And, you know, there's been a lot of hype lately that the Quad is back in a big form, that the Quad is going to lead to something great. Um, and the Quad often gets, you know, misinterpreted by its proponents and its critics alike. Um, it is, for the moment, a purely kind of consultative body between four like-minded states with a similar amount of um, economic hard power heft in, in the Asian region, obviously the United States and Japan bringing more to the table than India and Australia do necessarily. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, when it, when you think about this geopolitically, uh, I really think, I mean, this 
the fact that we saw the quad sort of reemerge in 2017 is is again less surprising. I mean, uh, you know, we've seen Abe last in office as a Japanese prime minister for five years, and as the main proponent of the Indo-Pacific, I think he's um, you know felt a degree of confidence after his successful diplomacy across the region, uh, including you know Japan's great outreach and security assistance to a range of Southeast Asian countries. Japan is really um, concerned, obviously, about about China's rise. Uh, it has its own sort of bilateral agenda with China in the East China Sea and over historical issues um, in the economic relationship. That relationship happens to be in a in a good place right now, even though we have sort of, as we talked about on a recent episode, seen the People's Liberation Army Navy test Japanese claims in the East China Sea recently. But I think it makes sense that Tokyo has uh, really, you know, taken the lead in, in bringing the Indo-Pacific together. Um, but, you know, I mean, my question that I had, again, after my conversations in Tokyo, is that everybody was able to give me a very good kind of theory of why the Quad or why the Indo-Pacific strategy must exist today, right? There is a lot of Chinese behavior that we can point to that is concerning to governments in Washington, New Delhi, Canberra, and Tokyo to varying degrees. So everybody knows why these countries have to come together, why the Indo-Pacific needs to unite around a set of ideas, around the rules-based order, around the status quo. But I don't think there's yet a, a good theory of, um, you know, how, you know, what the Indo-Pacific strategy will lead to. Um, I think it's the problem for any kind of status quoist project in international politics. Uh, when you want to keep, you know, the the revisionist power, in this case, China, has the advantage by having somewhat more of an idea of what it would like to accomplish in Asia. We see this with the Belt and Road Initiative and, and other Chinese diplomatic initiatives. So I think that for me is kind of the big uh, question mark for for the Quad. Uh, you know, consultations have begun, but where do things go from here? Um, and I yeah. guess, you know, I'll, I'll turn it back to you for that. I mean, what what's really next for the Indo-Pacific and the Quad? Yeah, I mean, I I think you're you're right to sort of frame this uh, Indo-Pacific concept in in historical perspective, right? You had the Japanese talk about it before, you had the Australians uh, subsequently also encouraging the United States under the Obama administration to to adopt this term, um, and the Indonesians as well. I mean, they they've used this term Indo-Pacific vision and. What's interesting to me with with the um, with the term is since the Trump administration has been using it and it's become sort of a um, almost a, a sort of rhetorical device and in, in media commentary is that you're finding the term slipping into you know several other Asian states vocabulary right the Singaporeans have used it more the Indonesians have used it more so it, it is interesting to see just in terms of terminology how things have evolved so quickly from you know the the terminology from Asia Pacific to to Indo Pacific but I think you're right, you know, like in terms of the, the, the term Indo-Pacific, it's, it's, it's still quite vague in terms of what this means. I think in terms of the geopolitical envir uh, environment, that's where sort of it's clearest in terms of, you know, very simplistically seen as, you know, the Trump administration is using the term Indo-Pacific to bring in India because it's part of this, you know, approach that targets revisionist powers like Russia and, and China and India is seen as part of that effort to, you know, and sort of, you know, quote unquote, contain or resist or, or defend against what the Chinese are doing. I, I think that part is, is very clear, and but it's a very simplistic notion about what the Indo-Pacific uh, strategy or vision is. I think when folks in the region think about it, they also think about it having a economic component. And it's very difficult to see where that economic component is without this sort of, you know, rules and standard setting uh, initiative like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which sort of gave the United States this sort of like 
you know economic pillar for the the rules based order if you will um, and you know the, and there's several other issues too i mean before when there were discussions about the quad there was insistence that um, you know to your point about you know concerns about militarization and the quad only being focused on security issues people saying that you should include things like commerce you know women's empowerment democracy and human rights in discussions about the quad um, as it has been in several of the trilaterals um, and I think the the issue there is you know I'm not so sure if you know the Trump administration's record on some of these issues you know matches that sort of focus and so if you think about it from from a US perspective there's not a lot of coherence there in terms of the uh, the administration's uh, viewpoint on where this uh, vision is going to be, in terms of the quad, you know, I I, I, I like the way you you sort of framed it, right? It's a, it's a loose grouping uh, of like-minded countries in the sense that when this was originally framed uh, under the Bush administration, it included several other Southeast Asian states as well um, that were not formally part of the quad, but were also involved in some of the interactions. And I think one of the interesting things is we've seen over the last few years. Even though individual countries in the Asia Pacific don't call it formally speaking a quad, they have been increasing their own exchanges and interactions on the security side with the United States, with Australia, and with India. So I, I do think that on one level, if the quad were to be operationalized in some way, there is actually more room for some of these countries to be involved in an informal capacity on their own or in concert with this so-called quad. I, I think the, the other sort of issue, though, uh, on the other side of it, is that, you know, how what China's reaction is, is to all this, right? I mean, in, in terms of how China would react if smaller Asian states would want to join with uh, the formal members of the Quad, I think the Chinese are in a much better position to impose pressure and, and potentially coercive actions on these countries if they choose to join the Quad. And I think the Chinese have already been doing that uh, with some of these countries on the South China Sea and other issues. So I think those countries will also be bearing that in mind as they think about their options on how to engage on the issue. Yeah, I think, you know, on the issue of smaller countries, uh, a lot of them are dealing with this question of do we bandwagon with China or do we balance China and and there isn't one answer uh, both I mean, most countries in Asia are trying to do a combination of the both with uh, with some exceptions there are clearly some countries especially in continental Southeast Asia that have decided that it is um, better for them longer term to align their fortunes with China also for a variety of domestic political factors you know I think you're actually uh, you absolutely hit it uh, on the head when you said that the Quad is about more than the four countries that are actually part of the Quad, which is, you know, maybe why it's not actually useful to think about the Quad as a group of one, two, three, four countries, specifically these four. Uh, you know, in a way, I mean, the ideas that we're talking about right now uh, actually follow quite directly from, you know, what we heard a lot about in 2016 from the Obama administration, the idea of a principled security network. It was very much a similar idea of like-minded states coming together, increasing mm -hmm. their um, their interactions primarily on uh, security cooperation. Um, regarding the oper operationalization, you know, I think there's a few kind of low-hanging fruit items for the Quad, at least in the next, you know, six months to a year. One big one, I think, um, that's almost s certain to happen this year is is a um, a resumption of a large Malabar exercise, something like 2007, with Australia in the room this year. I think uh, for India, there were hesitations in the past about including the Australians. Uh, last year, uh, India was 
the primary reason that Australia didn't participate. The Australians were interested in joining Malabar last year. And I think after the Doklam episode last summer, the Indians are a lot more comfortable um, raising raising the temperature with China. And, uh, you know, regarding the point you brought up about China's reaction, um, I think it's it's interesting to note how the China of today reacted to the consultative meeting of the Quad that occurred in Manila versus how it might have reacted in 2007. I think, um, you know, Chinese interests have remained static over the period. I think what's changed, the variable has been Chinese national power. And um, China today is a much more confident country. And I think I think the Chinese know that the Quad in its current form is quite limited. It's, it's not an alliance. Um, and I think this sort of more self-confident outlook from the Chinese when it comes to you know, four high-level bureaucrats from these countries getting together and issuing a range of statements. Um, I think the reaction has been to kind of wait and see where things go. Um, I think, you know, if and when, you know, an expanded Malabar does occur, um, it'll be interesting to gauge the Chinese reaction. Do the Chinese protest loudly, diplomatically, issue uh, demarches to various national capitals? Or, you know, do they stage a show of force of their own um, to... Uh, to effectively indicate that you know they they understand what's going on and they understand that the quad is an alliance, but they you know they see an attempt at containment. Um, I mean, this is really you know a classic kind of geopolitical case of powers externally balancing a a rising revisionist power uh, in China. And I guess you know the core of the Indo-Pacific that we haven't really hit on yet is that it's it's fundamentally a uh, maritime oriented grouping, right? I mean, the name tells you the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And this is actually where we can go even further back to Abe's address to the Indian parliament um, in, in 2006. The speech that he gave then was titled The Confluence of the Two Seas, um, mm -hmm. the seas in this case being the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. Um, and for Japan, I mean, this is still something, you know, I, I heard when I was in Tokyo that um, for Tokyo, I mean, it's, it's well and good to support the rules-based order, and Japan is certainly a status quo power in Asia, but at the end of the day, there are sort of real concerns about, you know, sea lanes of communication remaining open across the Asia-Pacific. Japan is a huge net importer of energy, energy that has to cross multiple geopolitical choke points from the Strait of Hormuz to Malacca to the Taiwan Strait to the East China Sea to make it to Japanese shores. Um, and by investing in the Indo-Pacific's um, concept and by pursuing a strategy to preserve things like freedom of navigation, international law, ensuring that uh, amid all of Asia's maritime disputes that matters don't escalate into conflict, Japan is really preserving some core national interests. Um, and, you know, the more I think about the Quad, I really think that we will see the Japanese leading, not not because of their particular interest historically in this idea and because of the initiative they've already taken, but because I think Japan simply has the most interest in, in seeing something like the Indo-Pacific persevere. The United States obviously is the, is the dominant hegemon in the region, but I think the U.S. has a much broader toolkit available to it and a very different kind of bilateral relationship with China to um to manage and contain china in its own way um for instance i think the indian ocean matters for the united states in a very different way than it matters for japan um and obviously how it matters for india so it's interesting i mean there are these points of divergence between the four countries in the quad um that i think you know by by probing those we actually might glean more insight into where this grouping is heading yeah no absolutely i'd, I'd, I'd agree with that and I'd, I'd also say i mean the the other term that you know we've, we've discussed you know the the indo-pacific vision we've now discussed uh, the, the quad and the other term that you know it continues to be talked about is this vision of a rules-based order um that the obama administration talked about and the trump administration is is talking about um as well and and i do think here that um you know the 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 quad and the members of the quad as well as other countries 
one of the big test cases for uh, enforcement of the rules-based order was the the PCA ruling on 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 the South China Sea following the the Philippines case against China, mm-hmm. and and I, I do have to say I mean when when you sort of consider the momentum uh, and the understanding reached by these countries on what they were going to do following the decision I mean that was one of the cases where we did see um, a, a failure really among these major powers to really enforce uh, the decision on the PCA ruling. A lot of that was brought about because some of these claimant countries, um, you know, particularly the Philippines, after the election of, you know, President Rodrigo Duterte, um, you know, wasn't itself willing to take this up as a major issue with China. And so the United States and, and several other countries were limited in what it could do. But I do think, you know, that was an interesting example, again, going back to our earlier point about how, even as we're talking about these four big powers, uh, to a certain extent, you know, these smaller powers and, and, and countries do have a say as to how these bigger powers engage with these big rules, norms, and institutions as well. Yeah, so Prashant, a final question that I wanted to get your thoughts on, um, given that you watch Southeast Asia so closely, um, is, uh, is you know, the fate of what happens to, um, you know, the 10 countries that are the member states of ASEAN. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about uh, the divergences within ASEAN. Uh, you know, within continental ASEAN and maritime ASEAN and the claimant states in the South China Sea who are generally um, split among themselves. Some of them are forward-leaning, some of them are less forward-leaning, some of them wax and wane, and how forward-leaning they are, like the Philippines, and uh, their interest in the rules and based order comes and goes, their interest in Chinese capital comes and goes. Um, are they going to be the center of of this tug of war between China and the United States, um, or not the United States, but, you know, China and sort of the concert of the Indo-Pacific, so to speak, um, for the foreseeable future? Or do you think these these states will, um, you know, are they going to indefinitely pursue hedging or do you think they'll tilt one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you sort of hinted there um, at, at what we might see with, with your question, which is that, you know, Southeast Asia is, is a diverse group of countries and you'll probably get a mix of choices in terms of um, alignments there. I mean, I guess... The, we go back to the uh, original point where we started out, which is that if you consider the Quad um, as a loose grouping of countries and you consider this Indo-Pacific vision as something that's much broader, um, cemented between these these various bigger powers, some of these smaller countries of Southeast Asia already have um, quite tight links uh, with the United States, Japan, and India, um, and even Australia as well. And so these countries, you know, whether it's the Philippines or Malaysia or Singapore, um, may actually be more receptive to participating in more multilateral or minilateral engagements that are tied to the Quad. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there there are these other countries that will, as, as you pointed out earlier, tilt more towards China or be more cautious about pursuing alignments that are seen as being, you know, too pro-U.S. or too pro-Western. Um, and I think that sort of trend will will continue to to persist. I also, you know, suspect that these countries will see the Quad as being only one of several institutions that they're uh, that they're engaging in, the multilateral institutions, you know, whether it be it ASEAN or or others like the UN, minilateral engagements, including you know trilateral cooperation that these countries are pursuing. You know, all of these things will be seen in in perspective. Uh, with respect to the Quad, I also, you know, do think that the factor that you pointed out earlier is really important, which is domestic political considerations. You know, several of these 
Southeast Asian countries are in the midst of big transitions or elections this year. Mm -hmm. Cambodia is the big one, but Malaysia also has um, an election this year. Thailand is in the midst of a transition. Singapore, a multi-year transition away from the Lee family and, and leadership there. So you will see these countries as well, sometimes pursuing alignments one way when they have domestic political considerations. And then after you know certain elections or when they have more of a domestic political control, they may hedge another way or realign themselves too. So I do think, you know, your, your highlighting of the domestic political factor is, is an important one um, for us to keep in mind and for our listeners too. Yeah. And, you know, on the domestic front, I think uh, that's again a place where China has a big advantage. Um, and, I'm, uh, and, you know, we've seen blowback, obviously, uh, especially in uh, places like, you know, Sri Lanka, some African countries, there's growing resentment of, of Chinese um, sort of debt traps and, and things like that. But when you know, when your domestic population uh, contends with this idea of do we align with China or do we align with the United States or the Indo-Pacific concert, you know, you ask what are we getting in return? Um, and China can point to a very concrete offer on the table. You know, we will give you X amount of money. We will build you this dam, this sort of railroad network, this airport. Um, whereas on the quad side, I mean, yes, you know, the ADB and the World Bank, the existing institutions do sort of do quite a bit for Asian infrastructure financing demand. Um, but I think, you know, the quad is just, um, I mean, this is, again, I think a place where, you know, consultations and conversations will happen because connectivity is is something that, you know, three out of the four quad countries after their consultations in November 2017 hit on, which which to me suggests that, you know, there is an intention here to counter or at least offer an alternative to China's sort of Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, it is, it is something that's a little bit more difficult for um, these smaller countries to domestically justify um you know there's there's very few publics that are inherently interested in the rules-based order per se but they are interested in seeing their material circumstances improve in their countries um so i think that's again a challenge for for how a lot of these uh, status quo states um that are part of the quad will actually compete with china absolutely Right. So I think we'll leave it there. And this is certainly a, um, a major geopolitical theme in Asia. And I think it'll be a defining theme of certainly the Trump years, possibly even beyond. Um, so we'll we'll definitely be coming back to this, Prashant. Um, to our listeners, thank you for listening to the podcast. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so, so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you have subscribed, but you haven't left us a rating yet, uh, please do so on iTunes. It really helps get the word out about the show. Um, thanks for joining me, Prashant. Yep. Good to be with you. Great. And we'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening.